Welcome to another episode of the Wisconsin Law Review Podcast Forward. My name is Traeger Mecki, the incoming senior online editor. I have the opportunity today to talk to Professor B.J. Ard, a professor here at the University of Wisconsin Law School who teaches intellectual property, tech law, and copyright. He's been published in leading law journals and co-authored a new section of Nimeron Copyright on the Google v. Oracle decision. He's focused his research on intellectual property and data privacy under the umbrella of tech and law intersection. He's a PhD and a JD from Yale, and wow, does he know what he's talking about. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So today we're going to be going over a little bit of a prelude to your upcoming conference, the Law, Legal, Institutions, and Technological Change Conference. That'll be April 22nd through 23rd here at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And the keynote will be delivered by Julie Cohen, who is drilling in on the challenges of configuring legal institutions to effectively oversee emerging technologies. And students, you can register for that conference uh, in your SBA announcements. The link will be right there on an announcement. So, Professor, I think I'll dive right in and start with asking, what brought you to this patch of the law? Why did you choose to focus on the intersection of technology and law? So initially, these just struck me as intrinsically interesting questions. Who would be liable if a driverless car got into an accident? Or do you have any privacy over your Fitbit data? But as I started focusing on the issues, I started to realize that the kinds of questions that are raising difficult challenges across pretty much every area of the law uh, and across the legal system as a whole are often coming from technological change. Uh, Technological change contributes to wider social and economic changes, and it's crucial to think about how to build a legal system that is equipped to meet all of these changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. The reactivity of the law to everything else dictates that technology is one of the inputs, given that that's how we interact as a society with each other and with institutions. So there is the reactivity of the law to the changes, and there's also the way that the law structures and shapes some of those changes. Hmm. That, you know, a part of it that it, the usual way that people think about law and technology is technology first, then law responds, But of course, the law is there shaping how these things develop to various degrees. The the clearest example of that where people have recognized it the most is with intellectual property. Hmm. Over there, the the whole point in some ways, especially if you're talking about patent, is to structure and shape the development of technology. But then you keep thinking, what about something like product liability and torts? That is also... Uh, meant to steer technologies in particular directions. Mm. Some parts of privacy law are are doing this, but maybe they could do it better to be steering the design of different devices and services towards more privacy in the first place. And it's that kind of thinking that could potentially get us to uh, some solutions to problems that we're seeing today. Hmm. That's fascinating, bi-directional and yeah, Mm -hmm. many, many limbed. So I think I'd love to take that and turn it to the conference. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great time to have a conference specifically on the interplay of these things. And I'm curious, what what general trends 
of the interplay between the breakneck speed of technological change and legal governance do you hope this conference highlights? The key idea that I've been focused on and that many of the panelists are also focused on is that we need to be thinking about law not just as a set of rules, but as a system. Any specific law is going to eventually become outdated. If social and technological changes are happening quickly, maybe those specific laws get outdated more quickly. That's not necessarily a problem. It depends on whether we have a system that is able to uh, respond to and channel those different changes and come up with new responses when you need new responses. That's really where the action is. Mm -hmm. And especially now when tech itself is the medium through which a lot of those things do happen. Fascinating time. Yes. No, part of the uh, inspiration to having this conference now is that so many of the major law and policy battles center on tech. Mm -hmm. There was a brief moment uh, earlier, uh, well, actually, I guess last year now, when the left and the right both wanted to regulate social media platforms, and it looked like they might actually do it, albeit mm -hmm. they were coming from different reasons in terms of what they were concerned about. Or you look at the FTC and how it's been concerned about monopolization by major retailers and service providers like Amazon and Google. You look at state efforts uh, where we have legislation around issues like consumer privacy or the right to repair in uh, a range of devices, including uh, things even like cars. And it's important to be thinking about how each of these different kinds of institutions fit into the legal system. How can they coordinate? How can they best be designed to meet these challenges and to, to fit together as a system? Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, that is a tricky issue. In, in, that, in that moment, you gave me social media, self-driving cars, devices, all of these myriad types of technology that we use every day needing to fit under a specific type of of regulation and under a specific type of law is, is that's a, a many-headed hydra. I'm curious, my instinct is to say that the effects of technology and laws interplay are immensely pervasive to, to the nth degree. Is that a proper reaction to realize this touches everything or where are the limits really? I would say so. So one of the things that I tell my technology law class is that, of course, if you're planning to do patent work, or if you're planning to go into entertainment and social media and First Amendment law, then it's pretty easy to see how you're going to be encountering new technologies and need to be cognizant of those developments. But ultimately, this does touch pretty much every area of the law, that eventually you get to a point where you have something unexpected coming along. It doesn't cleanly fit into the statute in terms of your usual definitions. It doesn't cleanly fit into practice in terms of the way these things are usually handled. And you have to be prepared to navigate those issues. Mm -hmm. One area where I thought about that a little bit is something like criminal law, mm -hmm. where increasingly we have automated decision, uh, automated decision-making systems or algorithms that are being used to determine where to deploy police resources or uh, whether to release somebody uh, pre-trial 
or in things like the sentencing context. And so you have a group of lawyers who have been focused on criminal law, you know, whether that's on the prosecution side or the defense side, who are now having to think about this whole other set of issues having to do with how do we integrate knowledge about these kinds of devices? How do we challenge these things if we're concerned with the sorts of outputs uh, that they're producing? How do other areas of law like intellectual property come in and complicate some of that? So it's valuable to be thinking about how you navigate those kinds of challenges. Absolutely, yeah. I, the criminal context is is fascinating. We had a, an article come across the law review desk concerning um, the automation of misdemeanor hearings, et cetera. All of these things, even within the legal process, technology and its regulation is, mm -hmm. is underpinning everything. Uh, you mentioned the unexpected areas, and I think criminal law is, is a fascinating one. Free speech, I think we can track that progression fairly easily. Are there unexpected areas that you find yourself surprised that tech law does arise with? Or are there areas where the layperson would say, you know, there's no way that tech or intellectual property would overlap with that, and yet there it is? One thing that has been really fascinating for me recently is to dig into the history of the automobile. Mm -hmm. As much as it seems like the automobile is a basic, easy enough thing to integrate into our lives, it turns out that it was actually quite a challenge for the legal system for a good you know, 40 plus years in the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. One of the things that I'm uh, publishing in Wisconsin Law Review uh, very soon actually is an edited version of a manuscript by Professor Willard Hurst that got into the effects of technology on the law by way of the automobile. Mm -hmm. And the challenge there, it wasn't really a technical challenge per se. It was a challenge of we have a new kind of conduct that everyone is engaged in. Cars had become very affordable and we had a number of accidents. And the traditional tort system, which was premised on coming into court, uh, establishing who's at fault, having a defendant who has the resources to pay for whatever harm that they've done. And that wasn't working so well with the volume of cases that this was putting on the court, with the mismatch between the blameworthiness of the defendant's conduct and the kinds of damage that was done. And even though it was not really working very well, it took a good 30, 40 plus years before we saw more proactive attempts at regulation through things like uh, sensible traffic codes or regulation based on issuing and suspending driver's licenses or engaging in pedestrian education campaigns to avoid some of those accidents, which ultimately proved to be much more successful than pushing these things through the courts, but it really took some pulling and dragging to get the legal system there. Mm -hmm. And now, and, and the progress of that is amazing. I think we it was really interesting to edit that piece and to, as the law reviews see, you know, what legal authorship looked like back then. It was fascinating to see the difference. But again, the topic that um, Professor Hurst was writing on, we now have Di Carvalho in our tort. That's a tort case that everyone reads, and it's predicated entirely on 
you know, the, the laws of the automobile that we understand and take for granted now. So it's fascinating to see how once, once it is instituted and once that adoption of tech happens, it really does spread out and then goes into something as fundamental as, as tort education. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Thanks again for that article, by the way. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so I'm curious, as we've stated you and clearly you're a tech law dynamo. Um, coming into this conference, what are your niche pieces of tech law that you would like to see more discussion on that you would like to see the conference kind of usher in? So this conference is a really interesting opportunity to bring together a lot of different perspectives at sort of different levels of generality, even on how to approach these problems, particularly how to think about the institutional dimensions of some of these problems. So we have this keynote by Julie Cohen, which is informed by her status as a leader in data regulation, including privacy, in innovation, in big picture frameworks for governance and accountability. And she really has a knack for distilling complex problems across different areas of law, across different legal institutions, even across different periods of history to identify the deep common threads and themes that are there. We're gonna have our opening panel that's on data intensive industries. That's gonna be hitting on some core definitional problems around the language that we use to discuss tech law and also getting into some counterintuitive arguments that sort of uh, uh, call into question several common strategies for privacy law as perhaps being self-defeating. On Saturday, when we get into our innovation panel, it's gonna be focused on primarily intellectual property and the interplay of courts, Congress, agencies, and what sorts of lessons we can carry forward from the consistent engagement with technology that we've seen over in the IP field. And then our final panel is gonna be aimed at some bigger questions of so what and what now. The panelists are gonna take us back for a historical perspective to the progressives' own complaints about the pace of technology in the early 1900s. We're gonna have multiple perspectives on the timing of regulation and whether the precautionary principle is a viable approach to regulation, whether law lagging behind technology is inevitable. And we'll be talking about new attempts at governance by building algorithms and automation directly into regulatory action and into law enforcement. Wow, that is fascinating that the idea of autom building automation in on the front end is is magnificent. You've mentioned perspectives uh, as kind of a through line to this and inviting new perspectives in on tech. What we we know that the law can lack a sufficient number of perspectives for the amount of people that it does touch on the other side. What are some of the ways that you see inviting new perspectives in both as crucial and as potentially, you know, an inevitability of tech. Part of the question there does get into the limits of law as a discipline. And one thing that technology law as, as a field very generally has been better about than some is realizing some of those limits and thinking in a more interdisciplinary fashion and trying to bring in the perspectives of you know, what is actually going on with 
computer science and engineering and these other disciplines. We're, we'll get into a little bit of that actually in the first panel with uh, Professor Reyes's work on uh, crypto law around things like the blockchain and Bitcoin and some of the basic language breakdowns actually that we see between the ways that lawmakers use terms like privacy and security and other things that are fundamental parts of this discussion in the very different way that the people who are working on the technical side of these problems use those terms and getting into you know, a way to get to some better understandings there and maybe make some headway. Fascinating. Yeah. I think of my, my thoughts during that circled around the idea of practitioners, of legal practitioners that will need to keep up. And we do have Everyone knows the the notion that lawyers are Luddites, that we, we do lag. I wonder if you agree or disagree with that myth or that characterization. The law is pretty adaptable. So we see historically a lot of room there to take what already exists in the common law or take what already exists in statute and stretch it forward and explain how it is that actually this thing that seems brand new fits in with a set of established uh, principles, established doctrine, established compromises hmm. that are already in place. And for most technology, most of the time, you can come up with workable answers within those existing paradigms. And I think it's important and interesting to take account of the features of the legal system that make that possible. Mm. A lot of the attention, though, goes to where that breaks down, to where we have a situation where the established paradigm just isn't working so well anymore. We've got gaps or we've got sort of anomalous results and we've got to figure out what to do then. And I think that is important to get into as well. But why that's important is because it shows us where the limits are. Like, where are the places that our usual processes and methods for figuring these things out fall short? Hmm. And that then opens up the question of what can we do with that? Can we bolster that in some way and find better processes moving forward? Those pain points can be educational. They can show us exactly where the law does need to develop. Exactly. Fascinating. This is going to be. This will be a very interesting uh, conference. I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the keynote by Julie Cohen around data regulation. I know we, we, we know about GDPR in Europe, and they've actually come out with new regulations as well. Is there any? Is it worthwhile to do a comparative America versus Europe data regulation split? Is that no longer the parlance of this this issue? Uh, do we lag behind as America here? So there's a lot of good work out there comparing the American and European or global approaches to privacy. In terms of thinking about this at the institutional level, it can be very informative to compare across systems and to see what works about that approach, what works about another approach, is there 
something that the two different strategies can learn from each other? Can they complement each other? Are some of these things counterproductive? And I think that is also going to be part of the discussion uh, in, in that first panel, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of the, the basic question, as I understand it, that uh, Professor Waldman is going to get into is whether it makes sense to have an individual right of privacy, having that as a component that a person who is aggrieved can you know, sue for that breach. Is that uh, something that is an effective piece of it? Or is that something that ends up uh, becoming the excuse for not doing more? Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And and the nature of privacy and the nature of data, which is is the piece that privacy is is function is functioning upon, you know, the nature of the resource itself almost dictates. And it's a global data is global at this point. It it sees no boundary in that sense. So I, I think you have a very nice point that these two systems, the many systems of governance of data, do need to complement and overflow and share and grow uh, mutually. Now, I'm curious, this is, this is especially heady stuff, I think. How mm -hmm. would, I, I think of my fellow students here and students mm -hmm. that may come to the conference, how can they best prepare for this to, to keep up and to be able to glean those through lines that you've mentioned and, and the historical as well as current trends that are developing? Bring your curiosity. Hmm. The problems that are at the core of each of the presentations that we're going to see are, in a sense, timeless. They're going to lay out their arguments. They'll get into the weeds, of course, with some examples and some new or historical developments to flesh out what they're saying. But the chances are high that a lot of those particular details are going to be new to the other panelists as well. These are the starting points for a discussion and for sharing perspectives and for seeing, like, actually, is there another example out there that also should be brought into the conversation? And so it's a great chance, especially since we've got people who are coming at these issues more from the privacy camp of legal scholars and more from the IP camp of legal scholars and more from sort of big picture governance and what to do with algorithms. Mm -hmm. So even within the law, sometimes you get an interdisciplinary conversation mm -hmm. uh, between different groups like that. So I think that's going to be productive for everyone involved. In terms of preparing, I, I'd encourage you to register, download the papers, skim the abstracts and the intros. If anything draws you in, then you know, keep reading it. You know, satisfy that curiosity. Uh, a lot of the submissions are short, uh, a few pages to set the stage, or maybe 20 pages to develop the idea with examples. We do have a few longer drafts in there. If those are things that you're interested in, certainly dig in. And if you're able to read that in depth, all the better. Talk to friends who are going, write down your questions, bring them for the Q&A that's going to be after each panel, or for the downtime between sessions when participants are going to be around and chatting about all the interesting things that are coming up in the discussion. Well, if you have things that you want to say or that you're curious about in the arguments that they've made, that's the perfect time to strike up that conversation. Mm -hmm. And it does seem as if this would be striking while the iron is hot. This is, as we've mentioned, this is, this touches everything. 
and the confluence of tech and law and legal institutions really it, it has pervasive effects. So for the students, uh, no assigned reading. The professor wouldn't do that, but there are definitely ways that we can uh, we can bolster our our knowledge going in and then keep a Google search box open while yeah. it's happening. Oh, definitely. Wikipedia is your friend. <laughs> do donate to Wikipedia. I think <laughs> they need our money. <laughs> now, I'm curious. We've, we've discussed how a student can prep for the front end and during the conference. That's very useful. I'm interested in the average practitioner. Law is made up of the people who practice it and the people that are in the audience of it. I'm curious what we have, specifically because tech law does draw from you know state, federal, international. It's it's a very multi-jurisdictional, very conflict of laws esque mm -hmm. topic. Let's focus in on the Wisconsin practitioner, this state. What what does this conference hold for them, and what can this state expect moving forward? Well, these are the kinds of challenges and the kinds of changes that are sweeping across the board. So we've talked a little bit about criminal law already and how that's moving and how that's changing. We've talked a little bit about how so many of these problems are cross-border in nature. And so we even see you know, at the state level various attempts, uh, some uh, more successful or better thought through than others to deal with things like the regulation of social media platforms or any of these issues that a lot of people are looking to the federal government for guidance, but there are things going on much more locally in a lot of places. And if you even take you know, something like, uh, I, I know one of the things that the law school has been thinking about lately is rural outreach and providing services that are needed in more rural parts of the state. And if you've now got onboard software and terms of service and all sorts of things in something like your agricultural, uh, your agricultural equipment, your John Deere tractor that are now stirring up all sorts of legal issues with consequences for how farmers can use those devices, how they can repair that equipment and with the kinds of battles that are going on again, at the state level over what the rights and responsibilities of the owners of that equipment and the manufacturers of that equipment should be. And with the conference papers, those are pitched at the level of how to make sense of these things big picture. But the problems and the examples that they are building on are considering how existing institutional configurations fit or don't fit with the specific changes we're seeing on the ground. And it really is the skills and the insights that you develop in confronting those kinds of problems, the, the match or the mismatch between the new development and how the legal system is configured to respond. Those are skills that are gonna be meaningful no matter what area of practice you might go into. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, yeah. I, I think that that's very, that's right on the nose. And for Wisconsin practitioners, I think there's going to be a unique access issue as well. We do have immense rural swaths of this state that we do need to get broadband in. We do need to get an ability to participate in the tech sphere that currently may be lacking, um, or at least a lot slower. We may 
in Madison be a little <laughs> spoiled with our uh, dial-up speeds, but <laughs> dial-up. I aged myself with dial-up, didn't I? <laughs> well, I, I I feel you there. I, I can't believe that uh, the uh, Napster came out in 1999. Mm. I think that there are a number of law students who may not have been born yet when Napster was coming onto the stage. And, and that's a weird feeling yeah in some ways very as, odd as someone who has been thinking about copyright for so long yeah so in our conversation you've noted that the idea that technological development far outpaces governance of the very things that it is governing may be too myopic a view of it that the law is adaptive and that it's able to in some senses keep pace or quickly adapt and fit new things into its framework. And that's part of what we see. I'm curious, you know, moving forward, what methods beyond passing new laws, which again, I, not to use the word, but gridlock at a federal level seems fairly unlikely. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways to regulate, you know, the, the myriad items inside of tech law, uh, throwing out privacy data and regulating tech providers or also how consumers consume their tech? So the idea that you're talking about sometimes get referred to as the pacing problem, which is something that's been argued by Gary Marchant more recently, but it's a theme that goes back much further, even into those historical materials by Professor Hurst mm -hmm. and the progressives that the law is struggling to keep pace with the developments of a modern society. And if you think about the relationship between law and technology through a particular lens, then it makes sense. If you are assuming that the technology comes first and then the law has to see what it is, see what it does and respond, then it makes sense that you're going to anticipate it's going to fall behind because there's always some degree of lag and the harder or more unexpected those changes are the more lag you're going to expect but there's pushback on the idea that the relationship goes just that way law shapes technology as we were talking about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier one of the core insights of intellectual property is that you can put law in place that is going to structure how technology develops and we have aspects of that in product liability law. We have aspects of that sometimes even in environmental law, if there are incentives there to come up with technologies that are more energy efficient or pollute less or what have you. And this basic insight is something that people are thinking about is how do you take the idea that law does and can shape technology across a wider range of contexts? And how can you think about that relationship in ways that puts the regulation and the shaping of the technology at the right point in a new technology's life cycle? And I'm really excited about uh, Professor Bernstein's work because I know she'll be building on some of her prior work uh, on that subject that is now um, going to come out soon in the form of a book. Mm -hmm. And we're for the conference, we're seeing uh, an early sneak peek of the manuscript for the book. So I'm really excited about that. Wow, that's a unique opportunity. 
fascinating that the pacing problem is is built on the traditional method of doing law that it lags and that it needs to regulate retroactively whereas no embracing novelty may in fact solve the issue itself by changing the way you view the problem through manners that tech does provide well i think that's it's a partial solution like it it opens the door to some more creative ways of thinking and to some less defeatist ways of thinking mm. but at the same time i take one of the arguments from julie cohen's work to be that we we have these conversations that focus often pretty narrowly on the sorts of institutions that we had in the mid 20th century specifically on courts and legislatures and traditionally configured agencies that go through their notice and process or their formal enforcement kinds of procedures but over the past several decades we've seen a lot of new configurations that have emerged many of which do move faster and more efficiently than the traditional modes of lawmaking but the concern there is that because uh, so many people who are in law and policy aren't even thinking about those mm -hmm. they're still thinking in the old more traditional paradigm that private interests are really overrepresented and not being called out for it in many of these new contexts and so we have questions can we build accountability into some of these new processes what sorts of trade-offs should we be willing to accept if there's a trade-off between the accountability and the efficiency these are hard questions that need more attention mm -hmm. but it sounds as if they offer hope they can they can fix some of at least grappling with these questions can help teach us some of the gaps that we have in, in current legal thought and then some of the ways that society and tech have thus far outstripped the law and maybe have a more you know solve the pacing problem is that is this a place we can look to for hope that's the value of disruptions to me that if you have something that is breaking down in the legal system because of technological change or really other kinds of social change that shows where the points of failure are that shows what are the capabilities and what are the limits of the system and of the institutions in that system as it's currently configured. It's easier in most cases to identify those sorts of limits than it is to come up with the solutions of how do we fix it, but it is something that gets us started down that road. So we've touched a lot on the need specifically with potentially new forms of regulation, but regulation to eschew the old paradigm, to, to change the idea of a reactionary law. I'm curious with, we have a new bill sponsored by Senators Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Grassley and Representatives Ciceline and Gooden, um, that is definitely the, the traditional way of moving regulation forward, which we, we don't see in many areas anymore. But this, this bill is focused in on regulating from an antitrust perspective sites that main that put that premiere their own products before others as a means of unfair competition and it seems obviously necessary amazon is able to do that 
uh, without qualm and they control a large amount of the market. Where do you think that that fits into the larger conversation of, of tech law and regulation that will occur um, next week? So, so with that particular bill, I, I have some passing familiarity with it from mm -hmm. reading media coverage on it. And let me offer an optimistic take. So the optimistic take here is that platforms, you know, platforms as in Twitter and Facebook, but also Amazon and Google in various contexts have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And there are questions about how or whether that sort of power should be held more accountable or limited in some way. And so this bill is taking on that problem. And sure, it's only perhaps in the context of sponsoring particular products, but there may be some cross-applicable sort of thinking to the other platform issues. Another thing that's interesting here is that there is a wrestling with some of the core concepts and justifications of an area of the law. So part of what has been going on in antitrust discussions is this question of whether competition is still the primary or only lodestar hmm. that antitrust law should be looking to. And there are arguments there that there should be a broader consideration of the needs and wants of consumers, which is something that is also part of the discussion here, which is to say, beyond competition, we have a set of concerns. How do we work through that? Is that compatible with the traditional antitrust paradigm? Is this taking us in a very new direction? A lot to think through there, but it's an example of developments that are built on top of new technologies, calling these fundamental commitments or methods of a paradigm into question. And so that's another thing that is very interesting there. And they are also wrestling with some of the issues that I think are going to come out specifically at the conference over whether and how having various uh, privacy policies or privacy best practices within an industry uh, might be competitive or anti-competitive and how it might be better or worse than privacy, uh, excuse me, on how it might be better or worse for privacy itself than some other alternatives. Mm -hmm. And you know, without without getting too much into the weeds or you know, stealing anyone's thunder, I think there are going to be some interesting conversations there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating. And it circles back to the notion of, of perspectives, of the, the consumer has a story to tell here, that they want to, there's, there's the interaction with the consumerism aspect of, I want this product and I want the best one or the most budgeted one. But then there's also the behind the scene conversation that the consumer perspective is not necessarily included in outside of changing radio buttons of whether to share your cookies or whether your email is shared. There's a larger conversation of inside of privacy and property of whose is your data. And, and I'm sure that'll occur in the data regulation conversations, but you've put your finger on a, an important piece, which is new perspectives. Is there a place in the new tech law paradigm for data producers or the consumer to to speak up. 
important questions there. I think some of it comes back to the way new technologies have challenged practices of contracting. Now that you have boilerplate sort of agreements, you have you could choose not to accept. You could say, I do not click to accept, but mm -hmm. what's your realistic alternative? And how much effort does it take to even intelligently exercise that sort of right? The amount of text that you would have to read on a daily basis would be immense. Mm -hmm. And even if you didn't like what you saw there, your alternative would be, okay, go open up another product, go open up another website and start reading again and see if it's actually any better or any different over there. And so in theory, this sort of, you know, is this contract law or is this the notice and choice paradigm that we see in a lot of privacy law, either one of those, are they working in the ways that they were imagined to work? Or are there aspects of this new environment that caused those modes of structuring private relations to break down? Mm -hmm. I I shook my head emphatically. I think I think it has been outpaced by by the sheer volume, as you note, and then the the complexity of of these things. And and your recourse, the consumer's recourse, is foregoing the product because. It is a one-sided interaction um, or going to the competition. So perhaps that speaks to this bill, the need for this bill in terms of antitrust to not, to open up that area a bit more. Okay. So that's, that's another one final optimistic spin on it then, which is that maybe this is recognizing that the conventional strategies of private ordering are not working. Hmm. in this kind of space and you know is this the the right answer or the best answer in its place we'll see but it's an attempt at something else so professor to wrap up what what exactly are we looking at with this conference so we've got a really exciting group of world-class scholars who are coming to campus we could spend four hours getting into more detail just based on what they've submitted uh, that you can go and, and download now when you register for the conference. But really, this is a chance to come in and learn new things. There's nobody expecting you to come in and be an expert on all of this. It would not be possible to come in and be an expert on all of this. This is a chance to learn to grow, to make some new connections, and we'd love for you to join us for the discussion. Amazing. I know I'm excited. This is this is an exciting thing to learn about, and, and like we've discussed, this touches everything we're studying inside of this building. Yes. So, fellow students, that is the Law, Legal Institutions, and Technological Change Conference. It's happening April 22nd through April 23rd. Our keynote will be delivered by Julie Cohen. Um, who's going to be drilling in on the challenges of government, governmental institutions and their capability of overseeing emerging technologies. And again, registration for that event will be available through your SBA announcements. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, listeners, that was our interview with Professor B.J. Ard. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into Forward, 
a podcast by the Wisconsin Law Review. See you next time.